Our reading today is from the book of Romans, chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 25. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 25. Listen carefully, this is God's word. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, The hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word, that it's good, it's true, it's right. And Father, I pray now that your spirit would come and work in mighty ways uh, through your word. We need the help of your spirit. I pray that your spirit help me preach your word with power. And I pray that your spirit would help us... Receive your word uh, like the soil uh, that received um, the good seed and it produced an abundant harvest. Father, would you do these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. All right, let's turn our attention now to God's word. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 25. So there we're talking about something that surrounds us. It confronts us everywhere we go. You can see it on HD uh, every night when you turn on the news. And every day, news headlines, they're constantly being replenished uh, with a new topic that pertains to this. We see it touch our families. We see it touch our marriages, all our relationships. We as humans spend so much time trying to avoid it or medicate it. Um, or come to grips with it, understand it in some way. Our children come into the world, and first thing, right off the bat, they have some experience of this uh, one way or the other as soon as they come out of the womb. Uh, This is as certain as gravity or the scientific fact that the sun will rise tomorrow. And when we come into contact with it, all kinds of things happen in us, in our hearts. We cry. We worry. We fear We feel anger, sadness, despair, depression. Its details provide the contents of so many of our prayers. This transcends all cultures, all languages, all socioeconomic classes, and any other possible distinction we can think of as human beings. It's the great equalizer, because it doesn't really care how rich you are, how poor you are. It doesn't care where you're from, how educated you are. 
Every race, every people group on earth is touched by it every day. It's one of the most basic realities of life on planet earth. Man is born to trouble, like the sparks fly up, or is what Job says. Of course, what we're talking about here is the certain reality of suffering, human suffering that we all uh, experience in some way or the other. If everything I said is true, then the question we ask ourselves is not, will you suffer? Of course you will, but how will you suffer? How will you respond when the suffering comes uh, into your life? How will you understand it? How will you understand your own suffering and the suffering that racks our world? So this morning what I do together is I want to look at God's word in order to understand God's perspective on suffering. What does God say about suffering, and what does God have to do with our suffering? So what we're going to do today is we'll look at just three things uh, that we see in our passage we read from Romans 8 that teach us things about suffering. Here's the first thing I want us to see. Suffering is one of the marks of belonging to the people of God. Suffering is one of the marks of belonging to the people of God. So the passage that we read begins by Paul telling us that we truly are children We're heirs of God. We're co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. But, he says, this is true. Only if we experience both the suffering and the glory of Jesus. So in other words, our suffering is an identity badge that assures us that you really do belong. You belong to Jesus. That you've been united with him and therefore you'll experience his glory. But you'll also experience his suffering. Paul connects uh, suffering with belonging to God's people in several ways in the passage that we read today. He mentions in verse 19 that God's creation understands that after a period of suffering, God's children will be fully revealed. Our, Our full inheritance as God's sons is currently partly veiled through the suffering we experience, but we can be assured by faith that it's still very real even while we suffer. A few verses later, in verse 23, Paul says that the children of God, God's people, even those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, we will groan inwardly as we await God's final work of revealing who his children are. A work that's tied to God's work of redeeming our bodies. Paul's clear that the suffering and the spiritual groaning we endure, again, this is something that comes by being a part of the family, the family of God. This is very counterintuitive, isn't it? Uh, when we think about how we normally think about suffering. In many contexts, pain is a sign that something has gone very wrong. And our biology works this way. And it's, it's good that it works this way. Our bodies are built with a nervous system that's wired to alert us that something wrong has happened here when you feel physical pain. And we instinctively move away from pain as a means of self-protection. This comes very natural to us. We do this all the time. But the counterintuitive aspect of the Bible's teaching on suffering and pain is that so much of the spiritual pain we endure as Christians, it's not ultimately a sign that something has gone wrong. It's actually a sign of something good, according to the Bible. It's a sign that God is at work, and that He draws us closer to Jesus, and He's making us more like Him through our fellowship with his suffering. We also have to see how Paul's words in our passage really change how we typically think about suffering, how we typically experience it. Maybe one of the hardest parts of suffering is this profound sense of loneliness 
and isolation uh, that you feel. People of God, have you ever noticed that when you suffer, you just feel so alone? When we suffer, it's as if you're speaking a language that only you and you only can understand. Whenever you try often to communicate your suffering to someone else, it's so often that the exchanges are so awkward. We don't really know what to say. We don't know how to deal with the suffering in front of us. We get blank stares or awkward words in return. Often when we suffer, we feel completely alone. We easily begin to think, I've been cut off from God. I've been cut off from other people. C.S. Lewis uh, insightfully once called suffering God's megaphone because of the ways that God speaks to us through it. And that's totally true. However, I think so often our experience of suffering, it feels like something very different than that. Often it may feel more like God's cosmic mute button. So often what we feel when we suffer is this profound sense of alienation, of divine silence, that we have been left to wither away, utterly alone. When you read the Psalms, you see this experience of suffering in so many of the prayers that you find there. When the psalmist cry out to God, saying things like this, Why, Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We read things like our Savior's words, final words on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And this sense of alienation that we feel so often, it's exploited by our sinful flesh that we become tempted to be bitter people, hard people, angry people. We want to shake our fists at God. It's essentially the approach taken by Job's wife. We didn't read this, uh, but it's right after our passage that we saw, after he loses everything, his family, all he has, his health. What does she say to him? She says, curse God and die. But what if uh, Paul's saying here, if it's really true, then this means that suffering for Christians is never, it is never a sign of God's absence. It's actually just the opposite. Surprisingly, Paul's saying that suffering is one of the defining marks that you belong. You belong to God's people. And if we view our suffering through faith, we'll see our suffering as God, a part of God's promise. That you belong to the family. It's not evidence that you've been deserted by God. It's not evidence that you have truly been alienated and cut off from Him. If we go through suffering as God's children, we can be assured we're on the right path. We're on the path of glory that Jesus has traveled on ahead of us. Notice in the passage that we read, there's also this crucial issue of order that Paul gives us. He says in verse 18 that we go through suffering now, but that glory is coming. It's coming for us as God's children. So the order is very clear. It's suffering first and then glory. Because we've been united to the Lord Jesus, our lives will follow the pattern of his life. Jesus, while on this earth, we know, was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as Isaiah describes him. Jesus had to taste injustice and heartbreak and suffering while he lived on this earth. He experienced physical pain uh, and the agony of death. In his life, he knew loss, he knew betrayal, he knew abandonment. But only after all of these things that he went through did he experience the glory of resurrection. Jesus experienced humiliation and suffering and then exaltation, vindication, as he was raised by his father. 
People of God, if Jesus is the pattern for our life, we should not expect any other order for us in our lives. We must and will endure suffering and loss and misery and sorrow. And the glory days we long for will never fully come in this life, but will come for us in the next when we follow our Savior and experience the glory of resurrection. Okay, so that's the first truth about suffering we see in our passage, that suffering is one of the marks that you belong. You belong in the family of God. What else do we see in what we read? We also see that suffering has been incorporated into God's redemptive plan. Suffering has been incorporated into God's redemptive plan. Notice what Paul says in verses 19 to 22. Paul's going to zoom out now from the suffering that believers endure and talk about suffering on a macro level, on a global, universal scale. Listen to what he writes. Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together the pains of childbirth until now. So in these verses, the big picture Paul wants us to see is that universal suffering, global, worldwide suffering, is not only something produced by the fall and the entrance of sin into the world. In a mysterious way, in a profound way, the sovereign creator, Lord of the universe, says he will use suffering to further his redemptive plan. Verse 20, Paul says that God did something to make the created world begin to wait with eager longing. This word eager longing is very interesting that Paul uses. This comes from a word uh, that involves several words that have been sandwiched together. Paul sandwiched together the word head, stretch, and away from with this word uh, eager longing. So the idea here is that God did something metaphorically that made God's creation stretch forward to wait and see what will happen, what is going to happen. He did something on one hand that looked terrible, from one perspective, but on another perspective, we know it's a good, gracious thing. Well, what did God do? Well, Paul says he subjected the world to futility. Now, what does this mean? What is this word getting at? Well, this is a, basically a recap of the teaching of Genesis 3, how God brought a curse upon the world as a judicial punishment for the sin of our first parents. If you read God's punishment on sin after the fall, we know that humanity's sin, it had worldwide implications. The created world that was once a place of peace and rest, we now know is a place that will bring Adam and Eve and all their children great pain. Instead of a lush garden that provides for all of humanity's needs, Adam and Eve and all their descendants have to sweat and toil to just scrape by. The land that was once designed to provide life for them will now be a place filled with thorns and thistles, a place that will bring them great frustration, great suffering. And so Paul summarizes God's judicial curse on the world with this word, futility. The idea here is that because of the fall and God's curse, the world just doesn't work the way that we know that it should work. The world, again, instead of providing life, is now a place that causes death and heartbreak. And we see this on a daily basis. Notice also Paul says that the creation is subjected to futility. He throws in this little phrase, not willingly. Do you see that? I think all of us can relate to the experience of God's creation here. If I were to write my own life story, I no doubt would have written it very differently 
And I imagine many of you here today would say the same. I would have left out all the pain, all the hurt. Um, I certainly would not have included all the disappointments, the frustrations, all the setbacks I've faced. I undoubtedly would leave out all the tears, all the moments of suffering I've experienced, and all the suffering you, you watch other people go through. In short, if I were the one in charge of the world, I no doubt would leave out the creation undergoing futility and groaning that Paul talks about. But thanks be to God that he doesn't let us be the ones who are in charge of his creation. God in his wisdom doesn't let us be the ones who ultimately write the story. Paul tells us that God wrote the story of the world to include suffering and frustration, that he did it with a very good purpose. Thank God that behind every tear we shed, every twinge of pain that we feel, God's sovereign hand is leading us, he's guiding us to something very good. The Bible here in our passage and in many others teaches us the who behind the futility we experience, all the suffering that we struggle with and endure. Ultimately, it's not Satan. Ultimately, it's not people, but it's our good, heavenly Father. So Paul tells us the who behind our suffering, global suffering, but he also tells us the why. And this is always the question we want to know, right, when we suffer. Why? Why, Lord? Why does it have to hurt? Why does your plan have to involve suffering? And this is a bit of a side note, but I, I think it's important to see that it's not wrong to ask this question, why, when we suffer. Because when we ask it, what we're really asking is, what does the suffering mean? What does it mean? It's an attempt to find meaning in the midst of suffering. The question why means that we believe that meaningless suffering is something that is unacceptable in the Christian worldview. So why, according to our passage, did God subject the world to this kind of suffering and futility? The answer to this question is the most incredible things we see in our passage. God subjected the world to futility after the sin of our first parents so that the world would one day be restored, so that all creation could be set free from its slavery to death and decay and know the glory that will come when we as God's children are fully redeemed. So again, we see that the universal suffering that exists in this world, the suffering we often experience because we live in this world, is something actually redemptive when it comes to us through the hands of our loving God. And again, this is very different than uh, how we normally think and deal with our suffering, isn't it? We as finite fallen people, we just spend so much of our time, don't we, running, avoiding suffering. We're always at work making plans for our lives, plans that will maximize our pleasure, minimize our pain. In the Christian life, we can easily succumb to the temptation of taking the path of least resistance and discomfort whenever we're faced with difficult decisions. And our calling as parents, and our calling as spouses, or just faithful friends, we can far too quickly choose the least painful path. The path that seeks our own comfort at the expense of everything else. But again, what we see in the scriptures is that God doesn't work this way. And his plans for us look very different than the plans we come up for our own lives. Our Father has a wisdom that is infinitely greater than ours. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, Isaiah says. Our Father's agenda for our lives does not include a pain-free existence. Uh, But his agenda is something much bigger, something much greater. 
His agenda will include using our experience of pain and suffering in order to bring us closer to the final glory that will be revealed in His coming future work of resurrection, global restoration. Romans 8 tells us that suffering again is something that God brings about in order to bring us closer to our full redemption as God's children. He brings suffering into our lives because He loves us and He's wise enough to know how to incorporate even the most difficult, painful parts of our lives into His plan of redemption. For our Father knows how to bring forth something good from the futility experienced by His creation, and this means He is wise enough to know how to bring something good even from your pain, your suffering. People of God, have you ever considered that your deepest places of pain could be the very places where God will do the most profound work uh, in your life? Notice also in verse 22, Paul gives us um, this great illustration. He talks about the world groaning together and suffering the pain of childbirth as it awaits God's final salvation, his restoration of his people and all the fallen world. He gives us this illustration that the world currently is in, in labor pains, groaning pains, uh, and he describes uh, this period as a period of groaning. And these are the words that really stand out to me in this middle section that we read. These words of eager longing and groaning that Paul will use to describe life on planet Earth for his creation right now. Groaning in our passage is about a deep longing that goes unfulfilled for a time, a desire that involves the suffering of patiently waiting. So here groaning equals longing, suffering, waiting. That's what it's all about. And we should find great comfort in the fact that we belong to a Savior who understands. He understands your groaning understands your pain, your suffering. Jesus understands our experience of suffering and groaning because he's already gone through it ahead of you to the other side. We can get glimpses of this in the passage we read earlier from Luke 22, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays that you be spared from the cup and he's in agony. The author of Hebrews mentions the same, the same kind of thing. In Hebrews 5, he says this. He says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. People of God, we must see that our inner turmoil and anguish that we feel as we yearn and wait for God's final work of vindication and glorification, this is not a sign that your faith is weak. This is not a sign of spiritual immaturity. Rather, this is all a part of the life we live in Christ, the life we experience on earth because we've been united to the Lord Jesus. And we will share in his life, his suffering. And we will share in the work of the Spirit as well. So I've had the privilege, uh, like many of you here have had, I'm sure, of being present when your children are born. I'm always struck by how amazing of a thing this is, this, this miracle of birth that you watch this person you love go through agony and pain. And then at the end, something so good is the result. I've often wondered if you were a child who was brave enough to be in the delivery room to watch your mother give birth, I've often thought, what would you think? Because if you didn't really understand what was happening, you would begin to wonder, is this good? Is she going to be okay? Uh, she's in such agony. This is, this is a terrible experience. She's in utter misery. At some point, you'd have to trust her word or the doctor's word. That after all the pain, after all the groaning and the misery, something ultimately bad was not coming, but something that was very good, something 
that's a new life. So the key to experience, uh, your entire experience of watching a woman in labor is knowing what's going to be the end result. After all the pain she goes through, all the misery, what's going to be the end result here? And so Paul really says the same kind of thing in our passage, that the misery and pain of the present creation, it's not the end result. It's not our final destination. Instead, the broken world we live in is heading towards a joyful new life, something magnificent, something so indescribably good, we can't hardly begin to imagine what it will be like. So when we suffer as God's children, we must have the eyes of faith to understand what is God doing here. We must be able to trust His promises in the midst of our suffering in order to see beyond the pain, beyond the misery, to know that the end result will be something good. We must trust God's promise that all our groaning, all our suffering, it's leading us somewhere, to someplace infinitely glorious. Like the Lord Jesus, we must set before us our coming eternal joy so that we can endure the suffering that our Father has ordained that we should go through. So what this does is give us a new interpretation on our suffering, a new meaning, a different perspective that we just we would never come up with this apart from the wisdom of God. Okay, so we've talked about um, suffering as one of the defining marks of the people of God. We've also said that we have a God who's wise enough to incorporate even our pain and suffering in his plan of redemption. Here's the final thing, the third thing about suffering I want us to see in what we read. Suffering can be endured because you have a sure hope. Suffering can be endured because you have a sure hope. Paul, in verse 23, mentions that we groan inwardly as we await all the blessings of our full adoption as God's children. Blessings that will include resurrection of God, transforming your body into something glorious. And at the beginning of verse 24, notice what he says. He gives us this very short little sentence, but it's extremely important. He says, for in this hope we were saved. What this little sentence tells us is that our salvation includes both a past and a future work of God. The Christian life is really the tension that exists because of the fact that God's work of redemption has begun, but it's not going to be complete until the future. We've been raised from spiritual death to life. Miracles have already happened in all of our lives as the people of God. Because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. God's Spirit truly lives inside of you, and He's at work helping you live the life He's called you to live. God really is in the process of putting all the broken pieces of your life and the world back together again. But even in the face of all these glorious truths, we long. We long for God's work of redemption to finally be consummated. We live in a world that's racked with sin and suffering. We lose people that we love. We suffer the devastating loss of miscarriages and various other losses that, that will break your heart. We fight intense battles daily sometimes with fear, anxiety, or depression, or lust, or a whole host of other sins and sufferings. And many of these battles will be lifelong things that we face throughout our lives. Our bodies start to break down at some point, and we experience all kinds of heartache and frustration as a result. We have deep longings throughout our lives that will go unfulfilled as Christians. And the complete removal of sin and suffering we long for is something, again, we'll never see fully in this life, but it's something we have to wait for as Christians. 
is something that's the very basis of our entire hope, as Paul says in verse 24. And so what Paul does in our passage today is he closes what we've read by explaining to us where is the only truth that we, the true hope that we have while we live with the frustration and the suffering that comes with being a part of God's family. By mentioning God's future work of resurrection, verse 23, Paul's saying, look, this is the only lasting basis of hope you have in this life. He's telling us that we as Christians are putting our hope in something you can't currently see right now. You can't touch it. And you wouldn't even fully experience it in this life. A Christian's hope is never found in a political institution or a leader. It's not found through financial security or just, just getting better things. It's not even found in the good gifts uh, like the love and the security we find in our marriages and our families. You know, Paul says it's found in something infinitely bigger. Paul tells us that our hope is found in something, again, we can't currently see with your eyes, but you have to grab hold of it by faith. The Christian's hope is the only basis of our salvation rests in what God will do for all of his children at a future point, which is raise us from the dead and give us a glorious new existence that includes this glorious new body that will finally and perfectly do what it was made to do, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our hope is found in how the Bible closes its, its wonderful story of redemption, a passage you read earlier uh, at the very end of Revelation. The Apostle John has a vision of the new coming new heavens and new earth, God's finished work of new creation that he will accomplish when Jesus comes again to bring final judgment and salvation to this earth. In John's overwhelming vision of hope that he gives us, he describes his coming day when our God will wipe every tear from our eyes. He says, death and mourning and crying and pain. They'll all be no more. So this coming hub gives us, again, a whole different perspective on our suffering now, if this is how we understand it. People of God, consider that the clock is ticking on all your groaning, all your experiences of futility. And when our Christian hope is fulfilled in this coming day, your joy will have no expiration date, and you will never be sad again. When we view all our sufferings in light of our coming hope, what we see is that our futility, it has no future. C.S. Lewis, he says this so well in his work, The Great Divorce. He says this, he says, They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. So we should ask ourselves this morning, Is this where we're putting our hope? The striking thing about hope is that you can never really destroy it. You can only shift its object to something else, someone else. Every human being on earth has hope in some shape or form. Every person on earth, no matter how religious or irreligious, believes that if you just had a particular thing or a person or experience, then finally our groaning, our frustrations would be over. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the Christian has a hope that will ultimately come to pass. We have a hope that will not prove to be sinking sand, like the hymn says. And so listen, if we're not putting our hope in the resurrection and God's future final salvation, we're putting it in something else. And as long as our hope lies in the things of this life, even good things, you will be someone who is angry a lot. Someone who is full of bitterness and disappointment. The false hopes that this world and your flesh offer you are the hopes that one day you can have heaven on earth 
right now. You can have your best life now. You can finally get your hands on something that will erase the groaning, erase your longing. But the Christian's hope understands that our hope will always have this element of groaning and longing mixed in with it. We have a certain hope in God's future work, but this is not a naive hope. We don't just tell people to trust God and all your pain will go away. God is calling us to look to a hope that is infinitely better, but it's much more difficult. because It's a hope you have to wait for your entire life. There's a sense that all the Christian life involves waiting. We're waiting for God to finish what he started. So again, we should regularly ask ourselves as Christians, what are you really waiting for? What do you believe you can get your hands on that would get rid of the groaning, of the suffering, of the frustration? So this means that if Christians have a sure hope, a hope that is founded on God redeeming our bodies and recreating our entire world into something wonderful, this means you can patiently endure and you can wait in the midst of any suffering you go through in the present. At the beginning of our passage, Paul mentioned that if we compared all the suffering that we go through in this life with the glory that is coming, he says, look, there's no comparison. In another one of Paul's letters, he says this, he says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. People of God, when we finally get to where we've been heading, an eternity spent worshiping God in this glorious body, in a glorious place, all your longing, all your suffering, all your frustrations from this life, They'll look so small. And all the evil and all the misery of this life, once we get there, will seem so insignificant and ridiculously powerless when we come to the day when we finally get to go home and experience our full adoption as God's sons and daughters. People of God, I want you to hear and soak up this promise this morning. God's grace will sustain and preserve you until the end and enable you to wait patiently for this day. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the Lord Jesus and what he has done and that we do have a sure hope. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would encourage um, those who are downcast. You would strengthen people who um, feel like maybe they can't keep going uh, considering the things that they face. I pray, Father, that as we come uh, to the table that you would strengthen your people through the Lord Jesus Christ and that through his body, through his blood, you would give us the great gift of perseverance. Would you do this, we pray, uh, ultimately for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.